This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. This is Omo. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Omo. This is Rosie Deloach, and I have got the debut episode with co-host Elizabeth Perry. Hi. Hi, Rosie. Oh, my goodness. I am so excited to be here. Um, and Good. the topic that we've got for today is just is just fantastic. Well, I think this is near and dear to your heart. Absolutely. So um, we are going to talk with Margaret Shipman, who is one of the main writers and editors of the Violin Restoration Manual, which many people call the Weishart book. And this is near and dear to you for a very personal reason. Why don't you explain? (laughs) (laughs) So when I was in violin making school, um, I had the opportunity to take a repair class um, the first summer that I was in school. And quickly realized that I loved restoration and repair. Like just, just, it just clicked with me. And so then um, when I was getting married, which getting married while you're in violin making school is very stressful. So I don't know if I'd recommend it for everyone. How? How? In fact, just getting married in general is stressful. So, (laughs) okay. Or it can be, right? (laughs) It's great, but it's just the planning part of it sucks. Yeah. But, um, so you've got a book on one part of your table that's like all the details of this wedding. And then you've got another handbook on the other side of your table that's like, uh, how to set a neck. Yeah. Basically. (laughs) At the same time, (laughs) try to keep it all in your head at the same time. But when I had to do the wedding registry and try and think of like, well, what are the things that I really want? One of the things that popped into my head, I was like, well, I really want the Visar book. That's what I really want. (laughs) So I threw it on there thinking there's no way anyone's going to get that for me. You know, it's not cheap because it's not cheap. (laughs) And that was hands down my favorite wedding present. My husband thought I was a little weird. Because I, I, I opened it. I went, oh, oh my goodness! Like, oh. I was very emotional. It's like you got proposed to again. Yes, but it was a book. Okay. Yes, it was amazing. <laughs> well, just a little bit of background. I know that many of you are familiar, but just to give the details. So, the violin restoration book by Hans Weissar and Margaret Shipman was published in 1988. So that's almost 35 years ago. Um, Hans was with us for many years. He did pass away in 1991 after Hans and Margaret worked together for over 20 years. So she is the survivor of this book. And she was so generous with her time. When we met live in person in Anaheim, California, she drove up to meet with me and uh, was so kind and so charming. And I am beyond excited to share this story with you guys. Um, But just a little bit of, uh, I I really want to set the tone of what this book is. And there's some stuff in the forward and just the very introduction that talks about 
the way to think about this book. Do, do you want to share, Liz? I would love to. You know, the first time I really read through this book, I, you know, you try to start at the beginning of a book, right? And I remember reading this and it just, it really, it really set a frame of mind for me as well. So I've really appreciated this. Um, so the forward is by Lewis Kiefman, if I pronounce that right. Um, <laughs> sure. It says, a restorer must have self-confidence and faith in himself and his art. He must also have enough ethical judgment to subjugate his own ideas of style to those of another maker. A restorer must be able to perform this demanding work and more particularly must unselfishly be willing to do so. Yes. Violin restoration is not an inflexible or dogmatic ritual. It should be approached with the open and inquisitive mind of an eternal student. Preach it, Liz. <laughs> and although the repairs in this book appear to be complete, fixed, and pedantic, we wish to emphasize that no repair description should be considered inflexible. I love that. It's like they knew 35 years later, 50 years later, we would be reading this book and, and new ideas would come along, but they, they knew. Like, we are composing what we know now and how we know how to best problem solve now with the situations at hand. But they, they also understand that this is an exercise in problem solving. Yeah. And I mean, there's the case to be made as well. There, you know, there are probably things that would pop up in a repair even, even then that would require the flexible thinking because every single, every single repair, every restoration, every instrument, something is screwy in a different way. Right. And <laughs> you've got to be really mindful and creative about the way that you that you mentally approach things before you even touch it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I was wondering, is there a section that you most often have open when you are at your workbench? Um, I would say there are a couple, there are a couple sections that I'm more often, more, more likely to run and go grab the book and open it and stick it on my workbench. And one of them is without a doubt the section about carving a base bar. Oh yeah, me um, too. Constantly. Yeah. Right. Because you know, I don't do base bars every single day. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice to have the visual cues on there. It's nice to 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 read through it and see what, you know, see what they said about it. Um it's also really good to have, just have in the background. It's like a confidence booster, right? I love yeah. doing base bars, but um, just remind myself: how do I measure that like very slight angle that I set right. them at? Like, exactly. what, what's that formula again? Yeah, and then I've got there's like the the final heights according to the book, and then I have a post-it note that I got from Oberlin that's got like Oberlin heights that are very very similar, but just like some minor adjustments, and it's there forever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And everyone's got like slightly different opinions and slightly different tweaks. So there's there's flexibility, like they said, in the uh, in the opening, right? Yeah. But it's it's just nice to to look at that and see what one person's opinion was. Yeah, or a whole shop's opinion. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, it feels like it. 
is a collective idea right. based on my conversation with Margaret. Although even the measurements in that book are a range. Yeah. I like that because it's it means that, you know, not any one thing has, you know, there's not one correct solution to every single problem. Yeah. Yeah. Now you said you use this also for some setup work. Yeah. So I, I have found, you know, a lot of the, just sort of like the numbers for string spacings. Um, the first time I ever had to, had to carve an, a half size violin bridge. It was after I was out of school, I hadn't worked in a shop before, I'd never even seen a half-size violin template. You know, I had no idea what it was, you know, the the bridge template. I didn't know what it was supposed to look like. And and I thought, well, maybe there's something in this book about it. And and there is. There's this lovely, there's this lovely section near the end where it talks about how to basically draw your own bridge curvature based on the fingerboard radius and based on the string spacing and and the, it gave me so much confidence to be able to approach the problem um, myself. And of course, I didn't even realize that stuff was in there <laughs> until this episode. So my lesson is I should just I should just read the things that I buy. <laughs> Shouldn't we all? <laughs> yeah. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we're gonna have a quick break and then we are cutting to the one, the only. Margaret Shipman. Become prepared to work in the best violin shops in the world. The Violin Repair and Making Program in Red Wing, Minnesota invites you to join this unique one-year academic program that studies the repair and maintenance of violin family instruments, violin, viola, cello, and bass, as well as bow repair and rehairing. Over the course of this study, you'll learn about tools, wood, basic principles of repair, and common repair and maintenance techniques, all while refining your skills by repeating the many different repair processes. This program provides the most in-depth focus on repairing instruments and bows. To learn more about earning a degree in violin repair and making at Minnesota State College Southeast in Red Wing, Minnesota, visit southeastmn.edu backslash violin. That's southeastmn.edu backslash violin. You drove up here just to come do this interview, so I'm, I'm deeply honored. But I also came on Tuesday to hear some wonderful things from the Violence of, of America meeting. And uh, yeah, it, and it's just a wonderful organization. It, the, you only have to love the violin. You don't have to play it. You don't have to make it. You don't have to repair it. You don't have to nothing. You just have to love it. Yes. <laughs> You and I were talking up here about how overwhelming this can be because there's so many ideas coming at you. There's so many people that you know, but you don't get to see. Um, it's It can be overload coming to these conventions. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, of course, asked you here because we want to talk about what is casually known as the Weishar book. And um, it really should be called the Visar and Shipman book. Uh, <laughs> I knew it would be called the Visar book, and I'm very happy about that. Okay, good. <laughs> I have no problem standing in his shadow, let me tell you. <laughs> and it's technically known as Violin Restoration, the blue book that is uh, that is in Margaret's hand right now. A manual. Violin Restoration, a manual for violin makers. The whole title. Uh, and uh, this is a book that is on almost everybody's repair workbench. 
It is coming up on year 35 since it was first published. And uh, it, in my view, transformed what we as an organization understand about repair and restoration. Uh, so I would love for you to set the stage. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the time that you met Hans. Yeah. First, I'd like to say that we only wrote this book because there was nothing fine in our craft up to that time. Really nothing fine. And we spent seven years working on it, six, and then putting it together uh, another year and, uh, and having a fight, getting it bound by somebody who gave us a wonderful example and then didn't want to carry on. Uh, but we worked very, very hard for it because of the love of the craft. And Hans had the, all the knowledge and something like 40 people went through his shop. And they're the next generation of really fine uh, makers and restorers. And, um, and each one would have some, some story to tell you, good, bad, or indifferent, but always life-changing about uh, having been in that shop. And also just getting to meet each other in the shop because it was a, it was always a, a bigger shop. So we wrote it as a need for the craft. And even though it, it costs lots of money, nevertheless, we published everything ourselves, printed, published, and we thought a thousand books would cover the world need for restoration. Truly, we did think that. And in the whole years I was writing, I never imagined it applying to new making. Mm -hmm. which is really shocking in retrospect Mm -hmm. because something like a quarter to a third of it applies directly to new making. Mm -hmm. Somebody told me recently, we use it for all the little violins for the notch spacings and the, uh, for the the setup instructions, yeah, all the setup instructions. And, uh, so that it's really amazing to me that, you know, three decades later, it's Mm -hmm. still finding homes on workbenches. And I'm proud of that, but it's also why we wrote the book. Yeah. You mentioned that you don't recall who had the idea to write <laughs> That's it, true. but you knew, you yeah. both knew it needed to happen. Right. And in retrospect, we asked each other that once, it, like, whose idea was this anyway? And, you know, one doesn't know. I don't mm-hmm. know, you know, sometimes we just get tasks from someplace we don't know. That's all I can say. Yeah. yeah. So you were a cellist first mm-hmm. and happened to go to Hans's workshop. Yeah. And that was the start. Yeah. And the, and the beginning was actually meeting the shop itself. The main room in the shop was beautiful. Uh, and I walked in. I had come to, um, to do college work. And my cello was in really the neck angle had come way down that summer playing in a piano trio near Tanglewood because it was so humid there. And I couldn't push the strings down to the fingerboard. It was really hard. So I asked where I could go. And he said, go to Hans Weissar. And I said, would you spell that? (laughs) Like everybody else. So I went there and um, I walked into the shop and uh, I walked into the building and I really... I said, whatever's going on here, it's wonderful. I think these are kind of destiny meetings. You it, used it, the word soulmate. 
yeah, I think we became soulmates because we worked together full time. I started out just Saturdays because after I'd been there two or three times to do some little thing after they did work on my cello, I just couldn't help but ask if I could come into the workshop, which I hadn't been in, and just spend an afternoon and watch because I was so fascinated with what was going on. And he just very quietly said, well, if you're that interested, why don't you come and work? And I half laughed and said, because I don't know anything. And he said, if, you, if you're that interested, we'll teach you. So this was a life-changing moment in my life. And I started Saturdays while I was still in school. And about what time period was this? That was, uh, I came in the fall of 1968 and I was working Saturdays by 1969, practically. And I was on the payroll full-time June of 1970, June 6th, 1970. And I worked 21 years with him. Oh my goodness. And so I was a student and then I was something less than a student, more than a student. I was, became kind of a colleague. And, uh, and then they asked me to help with customers and help with shop things. I did some organizing in that shop. We used to have bows in one place and violins in another for all the little ones and cases. And then you had to find it and the bows didn't have sizes on them. And I didn't know a quarter size from a half size. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I just tried to so we should have these things ready ahead of time. Well, you know, that takes certain organization. The shop needs a good organizer. Yeah. So I, w- I could say I take credit for some organizing. Good. Yeah. good. Now you, in speaking of organizing, you early days just started keeping notes as you were learning repairs. Yeah. Uh, and because uh, you, you wanted to understand fully better. Right. Um, I speculate this was the genesis of the book. Could well have been. <laughs> I mean, I had no idea it would turn into a book. But of yeah. course, if we want to learn mm-hmm. and we want to remember, we need to study. Yeah. And so, you know, for mm-hmm. me, it was like, OK, try to remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Which way does the fingerboard slant and the neck? It's different for violin than it is for cello. Yes. We need to remember those things. So. Mm. And I've done all the repairs in the book. I really, uh, uh, one at a time, mm-hmm. just one at a time as one could. And Hans had, a, of course, a good feeling for that. I didn't do the first crack repair until I had been there for a year full time. And then he brought this nice little... Paravicini uh, violin and said, would you like to repair this crack? And I went, gulp. <laughs> but, you know, slowly we became, I can say, I I never had his fantasy for repair, uh, which he credited with his Waldorf school education uh, from uh, the yeah wonderful curriculum from Rudolf Steiner. And he said, it left me my fantasy in my adult life. And that's really an amazing applaud to that whole system of schooling. I just mm-hmm. want to give a shout out about it. One of many things that uh, Steiner brought that are life changing for people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if we could go forward a little bit when you are, you're in the middle of the process of knowing this needs to be a book. It is taking several years to get from the idea we need to have this book to bring it to publication um, you had some frustrating moments in, in writing just to get it clear enough. Uh, I, I think specifically you talked to me about the chapter on next setting. Yeah, I did. Uh, it was one of the hardest chapters to write, of course, because many, uh, 
numbers have to come together and many pieces have to fit together well. And uh, I did all the original writing for the book, which we decided very early on. It was my native language and and I had a certain ability to write, which got way different and way better as it went along, as you go through it six times, you know, mm-hmm. simpler sentences and et cetera, no colons and semicolons and et cetera. Uh, so I wrote this chapter and I, well, I kind of agonized writing it because it's, you need so many things to happen at once. How do you possibly, you can only say one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, so I wrote the whole thing, and then I started to rewrite, re-read it, and I took the whole chapter and threw it in the trash basket. <laughs> I did. The world will never I, know. <laughs> oh, my gosh, this is too hard. And then I sat and thought, okay, so now what are you going to do? And I realized, one, you didn't have to think every single thing from the beginning because some things change so much when you change one thing that you know, it's just not time yet to have to think about that. So it came to, you know, how does Hans set a neck? Okay, so there's a, a rough setting, a finer setting, and a final setting. And things you have to pay attention to and add to. Yes. And when I realized that, then I could start again. And eventually uh, it became a chapter that I'm actually quite proud of because it's, a, it's one of the hardest parts of new making. And not so much that you ha- always have to do it with restoration, but sometimes you do. So one thing that probably doesn't get thought a lot about is the way that you have to design this book so that it stands the test of time. I never considered it until you told me some of the decisions that went into publication. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, that was very interesting. Mm -hmm. For one thing, the lady who did the layout um, wanted to know if a chapter started on the left or the right. Because I I said, if it has a drawing and it has A, B, C, D, I want the wording for that to be on that page or the opposite page, if Mm -hmm. possible, that you don't turn back and forth and back and forth. We wanted it to be something that could stay open from day one on your workbench that would lay flat that would lay flat yeah. yes and so that takes a special kind of binding as you know from being everybody reads and we know how that goes with a brand new book and we didn't want the binding to be broken the first time somebody has to use it and try to keep it open yeah. so it has a it's called Smythe Sone binding s-m-y-t-h maybe it has an e uh, the the binder said, whatever you do, don't, don't do perfect binding. And I said, well, that sounds just like what it wants, a perfect binding. And he said, perfect binding means they take the whole thing and they dip it in glue and that's it. And I, that's why books fall apart the second time you read them. So I said, okay, an imperfect binding. And Smithson, they, they make a big mother page with eight pages on each side. And that's what rolls through the presses. And then it gets folded. And those 18 pages are a signature, they call it. Learned a lot doing this. It was fun. That part was really fun. And they sew each of those 18 signatures into something. So if you look at the edge of the book, you'll see a whole bunch of little sewings across there. Yeah, Margaret's showing me the spine of the book right now. So that way it stays open from Mm -hmm. day one. Yeah. 
and uh, th that was important for us. And we wanted uh, we wanted good ink, and we wanted paper that could stand up to our working hands. You know, yeah, we, you've got nice thick pages. What are those made out of? It's just paper, but it's good quality. Okay, and it feels like it has a kind of little coating on it mm -hmm. that where you could actually wipe it a tiny bit. You know, it's not washable, but on the yeah. other hand, yeah. I mean, I've I've managed to get a few stains on those pages. That's good. <laughs> I'm looking for a tattered copy one day. It would do my heart really, really good. Anyone out yeah. there that has a really tattered copy, please send us some pictures <laughs> exactly. from Margaret. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. One thing you said about this book is you're supposed to be able to use your head when you use this book. Yeah, and that's a kind of too forward way of saying what I said, which was just that. But it is a manual. It's a working manual, and it's called a manual. And it's mm -hmm. for violin makers to sit at their bench and do difficult uh, repair procedures. Mm -hmm. And I want to say loud and clear, there are many ways to do repair procedures. These are not the only way, but you have to choose something. Mm -hmm. And we chose what, what Hans felt best for the shop, what we used in our shop. Uh, but nevertheless, that doesn't mean that it's the only way. That needs to get said loudly. And of course, if you're already a violin maker and you're using this, you know how to sharpen your tools and, and you have thought life. You have really constructive mm -hmm. thought life. Every repair procedure brings its own set of, of, of uh, challenges. Mm -hmm. It's harder than new making in that respect. Yeah. It's really harder to do repair than to do new making. New making is beautiful, thick, wonderful, loving wood. And, mm -hmm. you know, it just appreciates you turning this tree into a great musical, organic living being. And repair has that kind of satisfaction because you're giving something back. Usually it's an older instrument, usually, not necessarily. Uh, often it's a more valuable instrument because who's going to do a, a really expensive repair on a $100 violin? You know, it's just not, not worth it. It's better to make a new top than repair 18 cracks. So uh, restoration is a very specialized kind of repair, but it's still repair. And that's harder than new making. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a thankless job. You should disappear when you do fine repair. Yes. Totally. No evidence of you. And right. if you're really good at it, good at it no right. evidence of the repair. And the only people who ever put in repair tags did the worst repair you ever saw. You know, it's like, what is to be proud of about that? I've, I've seen my fair share of signatures <laughs> Isn't it? in restoration yeah. pieces that I was redoing. Yes. <laughs> Very strange. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and you know what? To your credit... Uh, you say something along the same lines in the very front of the book, if I may see it for, I think the the line you use is, um, this is for the eternal student. Mm. Um, let's see here. Yeah. Um, a restorer must have enough ethical judgment to subjugate his own ideas of style to those of another maker and uh, must be able to perform this demanding work, and more importantly, must unselfishly be willing to do. Um, but yet you, uh, that's not exactly the line I wanted to say, but um, you do have a quote in here about 
the eternal student that mm. we are continuing. You're going to take the book from me. <laughs> no, I'm just yeah. showing you the, the beginning yes. quote, which Hans walked in the shop one day and he said, Margaret, I know how the book should start now. And yes. I said, you do? And he said, yeah. And he had this German saying that mm -hmm. he thought might have been Goethe, but he couldn't couldn't find it, so we didn't attribute it to anybody. But Goethe, uh, the great German poet and I philosopher, see. and oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. Would you like to read what it says? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> and then freely translated, mm -hmm. it says, "Everyone is an apprentice. A journeyman is he who has acquired an ability." A master is he whose ability has become creative. I love that you made this book and uh, it has elevated my work in a way that would not have been accessible to me in my years, not going to apprentice with someone, trying to learn it on my own. Right. And so I, I'm forever thankful. Um, and, and here we are. 35 years later, some things have evolved, but the groundwork was laid mm -hmm. with this book. Mm -hmm. And uh, here in this time, I do wonder, uh, as you look around, do you have any moments that you say, I wish, I wish Hans could see this? I haven't had that exact thought, but what I have thought is, I wonder if he knew what a life, ongoing life it would have in the world since we really wrote it as a manual for makers to do restoration. It was that that confined in its idea originally. And I think he would have been amazed to see that, you know, when we when a book went to Oman, I, I thought, isn't that a place in the Middle East? <laughs> isn't that by the Persian Gulf? I think it's made its way around the world now. My goodness. Yes. <laughs> So, yeah, I think he would have been surprised what a life it would have had. But also, I think he knew how important it was because, you know, who who can be in a shop where they can learn these kind of standards? And his standards were so high that every person who worked in that shop had to be affected by it. It wasn't that he was such a great teacher by telling you exactly how to do something. But his own standards were so high that you had to work above your best to try to meet those standards. And so everyone, their experiences are, you know, the shop changed my life. And I could wish that for everybody. And that's one reason that I wanted to, to be part of or to write this book, because how many people can work in a, in a, in a great shop? Almost nobody, really, almost nobody. And the comment was made once while we were writing, why are you doing that? I mean, the, 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 the amateur shouldn't have it and the professionals already know it. And I said, you know, first of all, the amateurs are doing it anyway and maybe they'll do it a whole lot better now. And maybe they'll read something that will scare them off of doing something. That happened once, somebody brought a, a very nice violin with a hole in the rib violin. And uh, they said, yeah, I read this in your book. And I said, this is not for me. So it did have that effect. Wow. And also, I said, the professionals, you would think that everybody knows everything. But it's sort of like saying that a, 
that all doctors have the same knowledge and the same capability because they have a medical degree. Yeah. It's it's simply not true. General practice and there's oncologists and there's pediatricians and yeah. So, and I was also want to say that one unique thing about this book is that we decided it was going to go around the world because it, that's was the whole point. Mm -hmm. And the, the, uh, it has four languages. You are turned to the page that has common terms, but listed in four languages. And one of our plans for later in the episode is that, uh, Liz and I were going to try to pronounce some of the ones. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, uh, super helpful to have to know how to say F wing or N pen or the body or the bout in four different languages that we commonly use: English, yeah. French, German, and Italian. And an international group that did simultaneous translation called the shop and said, "May we use this and give it to our translators ahead of time." Because if you're doing instant translation and you don't know what a base bar or a fingerboard is, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And and we said, sure. And I thought, see, this is why we did it. Yes. Yeah. Is there anything that I've forgotten to cover that needs to be said, Margaret? Hmm, good question. <laughs> of course, I mean, one could, every page in its day had a story. Yes. Uh, but I feel like you really, yeah, I think we've said the essentials. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you once again for being a part of this. Thank you for telling your story. Thank you for, it sounds like, um, the work and the love went, that went into this book. It was because you were honored to be at such a distinguished place and you were honored to share that knowledge. So thank you for bringing this to the rest of us. And I do want to mention, guys out there, if you are one of the few that does not have Violin Restoration, a manual for violin makers by Hans Weissar and Margaret Shipman, uh, you can go to weissarrepairbook.com, and that is W-E-I-S-S-H-A-R-R. Two A's. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, H-A-A-R repairbook.com. Okay. <laughs> so, and we'll put that in our show notes as well. And uh, you you continue to sell them regularly to this day. Yeah, that's true. They are, they are still selling. And you said like 80 a year. Something like that. That's yeah. incredible. It is. It's incredible. <laughs> well, thank you again. And thank you for coming this way. It was an honor to meet you. It was an honor to be here and to be asked and... Yeah. Nobody's ever asked to talk about the making of it, actually. And that's, yeah, yeah, I feel honored. Thank you. We're makers here. So, yeah, exactly. So that was incredible. Just listening to Margaret, I just, she is amazing. The amount of work that went into that book. Oh. Can I tell you that we just kept talking and then she invited me to lunch and <gasps> it blew my mind. And she had all these beautiful stories and told me about a lot of like she was just so open about her life. And I'm, I'm not here to repeat everything, but like I was honored to get time with her. But please continue. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, she just, I, I, I wish I could have been there. I really wish I could have. Um, um, but that just, it was really incredible. I, it really, it really amazed me. She was talking about the, um, the, the, the binding process for the book. Right. And it had never once, never once crossed my mind that it was a brand new book when I got it and I opened it and it lay flat. Like, right. It's just, they just I think about that. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. It just didn't even cross my mind, but that, you know, and, and the fact that the cover is made out of like a fabric covered, you know, it's like very, very durable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually made me feel a little bit bad because she talked about oh. wanting to see, um, you know, really beat up used book. And I thought, Oh, I still have mine in the plastic sleeve. It came in. <laughs> but you, <laughs> like, you know, you know about a beat up book. I do. So she talked, she was asking about like a beat up book and, and it came to mind. I, the, the book that, um, that they own at the violin making school of America and, you know, unsurprisingly, right. A, a book at a school is a little bit beat up. Um, like the, 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 binding has like cracked in a few spots. I'm pretty sure there's some pages coming out. The spine is like, like partially ripped off. (laughs) It's like, you know, there are lots and lots of stained pages. So it's been, I'm sure most of it's glue, but (laughs) it's been very, very well loved. Um, so someone needs to send us a picture yeah, if you're at the book. VMSA and you've got access to that book, we want to see it. Margaret wants to see it. Mm-hmm. I, I think you had one more thing you wanted to say about uh, repair labels. Yes, yes. She was talking about repair labels. And I, you know, I was actually in the process of designing one. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. I was I was really excited. I was gonna I was gonna make these repair labels that are gonna be about like five inches wide and like three and a half <laughs> inches tall. You know, so like you've really, really got to work to get it through the apple. Yeah. Um, yes. But like, you know, with gold gilt around the edges and then, you know, in like perfect calligraphy script, we we're going to, I was going to write, you know, lovingly revoiced and restored by Chris Jacoby. <laughs> <laughs> Please but, make that. <laughs> But maybe I shouldn't do that now. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh well, we needed to or we we wanted to go over some of the things that you and I when we revisited this book and just went from page 1 to the last page that we were surprised that it contains all of this information that that we even forgot was in there. Uh, yeah. you said Furnish recipes. No kidding. It like people there is act, Yeah. People acted like it was a secret. These very I, recipes. Yeah. One of the shops I worked in, this guy was like, you know, he's like, this is a big secret that I'm letting <laughs> you in on. This is a recipe for tutijali. You know, and he made this big deal out of it. And I was like, oh, okay. It is right there. It is yeah. in this book. So everybody can have this secret. So Great. it makes me feel good, actually. <laughs> there's um, there's how to make purfling. Yeah. There's 
I was surprised to see there was a recommendation when doing touch-up using deft. I thought that came way later. The, this is the, um, what is, is it polyurethane it's made out of? I'm forgetting. So I, sorry, Jerry's going to correct me. Sorry, Jerry. Um, <laughs> but it is, it's um, this base that you can apply um, to the wood before you do your love, your layer of color when it's, when you need a little bit of fill in there, cause some material's missing and it's wonderful and I love it. But I thought this was new. No, mm-hmm. 35 years ago, we were using deft. Yeah. Well, and like there's lists of shop tools and how to modify these tools for like doing violin repair. I mean, this is, it's a really comprehensive book. Yeah. And I, I think that back then there was a little bit more difficulty finding some of these tools. So it was great that they had recommendations for how to make them your own. Um, there was mm-hmm. even how to modify some clamps. Um, one of my favorites was how to make an interior violin light, not the thing you get from Howard Core, <gasps> but you can use an AC adapter from a tape cassette. Oh my goodness. <laughs> a six volt light bulb. That's how you get one of those. I think I think that's one of the things that's changed in the last that, 35 years. That may, yeah, that may be a little bit out of date. Yeah. Just a, yeah. Just a touch. Um, I do know people who still have tape cassettes. So, so there you go. Maybe, maybe that'll work for them. <laughs> Look them up. Look them up. Um, you already mentioned guidelines for setting up fractional instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, what else? Oh my goodness. Different ways of setting the sound post. Um, I remember someone, I, I was really angry one day, you know, and saying, this is the fourth sound post I have to do in this stupid violin. And they were like, well, what's wrong? And I was like, it won't even fit through the F hole. I have to fit it through the stupid eye. Like I was really, like, really mad. I think I was, yeah, yeah I was really upset because it was an mad. old janky top as well. So it's like, you know, <laughs> and, um, and they kind of looked at me and they well, said, well, why would that be any different? <laughs> Like, and then you strangled them. And you <laughs> never said a sound post. <laughs> like it was like just trying to keep my calm. <laughs> the calm that was already gone like three yeah. sound posts ago. <laughs> <laughs> and then you you mentioned to me earlier this evening how to artificially age wood. Yeah. That's in there. Yeah. It's like you know, there's um instructions on how to do an ammonia treatment, um, which I must say I have never done because I don't really want to deal with ammonia. Um, Yeah. You know, that's, it's kind of toxic a little bit. Um, bit. But there's, you know, there's also instructions on how to bake wood. And that's, that's something that I have seen people do. And there's, it's, it always seems kind of nebulous when people tell you, you know, oh, well, you kind of throw it in there for this long or this long or whatever, you know, so it's nice to, it's nice to have something a little bit more concrete for advice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, gosh, there's like a hundred more things I could mention. There's like, oh, like, it's yeah. like easy seven, seven line direction for how to glue a base bar over cleats, which is supposed to be like the craziest thing. And it just looks so simple. There's like, mm-hmm troubleshooting a buzz. There's sound adjustment advice, but I would really like to get to in the very back. And, uh, Margaret and I mentioned this, there's, <laughs> uh, four different, um, basically your major words that you run into the parts of the violin, parts of re- 
uh, repair, and it's listed in four different languages. So, um, Elizabeth, <laughs> would you like to try Uh-oh. just, okay. And, and I got to mention that part of this is because people have written in and suggested that we get a little bit of advice in pronunciation. So we're oh, going to no. just lean into how bad we are. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. This is going to be really bad. <laughs> yeah. See, we can trade off. So uh, would you like to give me the word for the, the Italian word for chamfer? Oh, dear. Chamfer. Um lo smuso perfect you nailed it (laughs) if i hold my hand up and shake it does that make it more italian yes it does (laughs) okay (laughs) okay you'd you'd give me one okay um all right we're gonna do italian for you as well okay um how about the sound post that seems important okay Ooh, i like this because it's uh, a tom york album (laughs) La anima, which translates to soul, which is just perfect. And I'm sure I got it completely right. I, I think the French does as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I've heard that. Um and in French I think it's lem, maybe? Lem. I could be wrong. No, I'm probably it's wrong. impossible. Okay. <laughs> um, so another fun language is German and Maybe you could tell me the German word for peg box. Okay. All right. Um, let's see if I can do this. Um, der Wirbelkasten. Oh, my oh, mom right. would be so ashamed. <laughs> she speaks German. She like I try and say it, and she so she always tells me I sound like a French person trying to speak German. You you sound too happy. Oh, fear about Kasten. There you go. <laughs> serious. German is Perfect. serious. I have no notes. <laughs> um, all right. How about you do a German one as okay. well? You have to be very serious, so stop smiling. I am very serious. Yes, very serious. Um, how about tailpiece? Okay. Die angle. Seite. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think it's I'm, D. I'm, I think it's no, it's D. Die. Are you sure? Anhängerseite. Anhängerseite. It's perfect. So good at it. So um, good. Excellent. So good. <laughs> no improvement um, possible. <laughs> absolutely. So, my friends out there, We hope you get a sense of how alive and still important this book is, how it's foundational to restoration, how it's helped elevate the field, and the tweaks and changes today that we do are built on top of this book. And um, I I have one little side note. We are titling this Project Blue Book. no, it's not about the um, the government organization that was researching UFOs. It's just that I have a personal affinity for that. So <laughs> I did not yeah. even know that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just, you know, <laughs> you say you blue wanna... book and I immediately think about this. Yeah. If any, any of you guys want to <laughs> talk UFOs with me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, guys, uh, let's see. There's just little tiny bits of news. Uh, 
I did just get back from the VSA convention, and I want to say a quick shout out to Tori McDonald and Corinne Hopkins, who are my roommates, and they go to the Chicago school, and they were delightful. And uh, I want to congratulate all the winners of the competition, but also to those of you who just had the nerve to submit your instruments for judgment. Holy cow. Have you ever done anything like that, Liz? So I was actually a scribe one year. Um, okay. So I scribed for Jeff Phillips and that was his first year judging. So we spent a really, really, really long time because he's very thorough. Shocker. Okay. Um, that's, that's what my roomies did. They were scribes the whole mm-hmm. time. So they were yeah. in the judging room for three days straight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was like really, really sleep deprived, but it was really <laughs> incredible to me to see the amount of care and consideration that every single one of the judges gave to every single instrument and you know the positive things that they had to say about things and you know sometimes the sometimes he'd go oh (laughs) really you know when someone just just kind of missed the mark a little bit but it was never you know it was never like angry or critical or whatever, but so yeah, the judges are just really wonderful. Well, I, I kind of had a sense of that, even when there were violins there that, uh, let's say, were more outsider, like someone didn't go to a making school, and mm-hmm. so they're missing a few things. I, I felt like everybody was rooting, but like, you, you brought it here, you submitted it here, you are here to learn Exactly. Awesome. And you're here to get some feedback, even if yeah. some of that feedback is just, you didn't actually make it through the first round. Yeah. But uh, but all of you guys, I'm proud of you. I, I hope to be in your ranks sometime in the future. Um, and one more mention, we did have an additional, after three years, we had another live Omobono confessional. And uh we're going to figure out when and where we can post that, but it was a lot of fun. And uh, it was lovely to be among among friends for the first time in three years. Uh, so I appreciate you guys out there. Uh, Liz, can't wait for you to have some time to be back in the fold in the future. Oh my goodness. Like actually talk to real adults and human yeah. beings. And yeah. Yes. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> That okay, sounds good. amazing. <laughs> Let's plan on it. <laughs> well, thank you all out there, and uh, we'll catch you next time. All right. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Omo is an all luthier podcast produced by Rosie Deloach, Brandon Gottman, Jason Peoples, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out at mail at omopod.com or call the Omo phone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening. <laughs>